So here's the thing about addiction. Nobody sets out to become an addict. Nobody wants their life to be completely consumed and to some extent controlled by a desire for something that they can never actually attain. You see, one of the things, one misconception that most people have about addiction is that the person who is the addict is chasing a high the corresponding high to whatever addiction they might have, whether that's a drug addiction or alcohol or sex, or even seemingly lesser addictions such as work or social media or the addiction of seeking approval from other people. Those are still addictions that can control what a person does and how they think about themselves and the behaviors that they do, but they have less consequences seemingly on the person's life and family and relationships. But the thing about all of these addictions that every single one have in common is not that the person is chasing the high. They're not necessarily chasing the approval or that hit of when they take cocaine or the buzz they feel when they are drinking alcohol. But instead, it's that they are actually trying to find peace. If you were to ask a group of addicts, what is the feeling that they feel when they are partaking in the thing that they are addicted to? The majority of them would tell you that they feel peace while they're doing it. For just a brief period of time, they are able to disconnect from the world around them, from past hurts, from past traumas, from current stresses and worries, from thinking about what the future holds and worrying about that, from feelings that they have about themselves on the inside that they haven't been able to deal with yet, all of those things they want to overcome and disconnect from. And so they are searching for peace. In today's episode, I speak with David Matthews, who has his master's in addiction counseling, and we talk about the signs of addiction for a friend or family member, how you can see if someone is becoming addicted to something or how to know if your friend or family member is addicted to something and what to do about it if that is true. But we also talk about what it looks like if you might be struggling with an addiction and how to know how to get help, when to get help, and who to trust for help. I'm excited to share this episode with you with myself and David Matthews, because I believe you will find hope and healing from what we talk about. Hey, my name is Kimberly Beam Holmes, and this is It Starts With Attraction, where we discuss how to become the most attractive that you can be physically, intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually, or as us insiders call it, the pies. You can become more attractive to others and most importantly, to yourself. We will teach you how. Let's dive in. If you've ever wanted to know what your 
attractiveness score is, then I have a free guide that you're going to want to go and download. Now, I'm going to tell you that this isn't going to be like those quizzes or surveys or tests that you see online that are like, how hot are you or how sexy are you? Because I think those end up making people feel worse about themselves at the end than ever before. This free attraction assessment guide that I have created is a no gimmicks, truthful and honest representation of how you can assess your and see the areas of attraction that you feel most confident in and the areas of attraction where you need opportunity for growth. It's not going to be done in a way that makes you feel worse about yourself, but is going to give you real tools and tactics that you can begin to implement after you know which areas you should focus a little more on and which ones you're already slaying. You can go and get your free guide at itstartswithattraction.com. You'll see the opt-in form in the lower right-hand corner, and it'll be emailed to you immediately. I can't wait to hear about your results and your scores and the way that you decide to make some changes in your life so that you can be the most attractive that you can be. Go and get your free guide at itstartswithattraction.com. So I'm here with David Matthews, who has been on the podcast before, and we have him back because he's just always full of good stuff and wisdom. And today we're going to be talking about addiction. And David has his master's degree in addiction counseling, substance abuse. Um, And so he is just a wealth of knowledge when it comes to this. And David, thanks for being back on. Thanks for being willing to discuss this difficult topic, but one that definitely needs to be talked about and addressed. Well, thanks, Kimberly. It's it's good to be on. Well, the first question I want to ask you is, how is addiction defined? Uh, many people label it a chronic disease, a chronic disease, which is interesting. It's a behavior or uh, a substance injected into your body or a behavior that becomes compulsive and becomes out of control and it takes over your life and it harms everything in your path, but you still do it. Right. And you, uh, so, you know, the common addictions are like tobacco is probably one of the greatest addictions in the world as far as you know, uh, people being addicted. And then, of course, alcohol and other drugs. Alcohol is actually a drug, but uh, it's probably the number one abused drug uh, in the world uh, besides tobacco. And and then, of course, you get to the opioids, uh, the OP, how do you say that? Opioids uh, and prescription drugs and all sorts of things. And then behaviors such as sexual addiction, pornography addiction, Eating can be an addiction. In fact, all the five things we need in life, eating, drinking, playing, working, and, and relationships such as sexual, being, being connected to another human being, right, that I'm not alone. All five of those areas, we can, we can abuse those areas, right? Anything that's good for us, we can end up being addicted to. And, in the, you know, mm-hmm. but if something is so good for us, uh, you know, for example, in my belief system, wine was created by God for our enjoyment. But is that mm-hmm. abused? And even in Scripture, it says, you know, you can abuse that. And then, of course, eating, mm-hmm. we have to eat, we have to drink. We don't have to drink alcohol. But I mean, we uh, we uh, we tend to uh, abuse all those areas because they're kind of essential to living. And uh, mm-hmm. the 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 drug the drug problem, the alcohol problem is is just enormous in our 
in our world, and uh, it still is. And the opioids today are just taking over too. So, and and we have so many people addicted to uh, prescription drugs that might be church going people who sit in a pew, you know, that nobody would think of them as an addict. And then you have the street mm-hmm. addict, and and you know we we recognize those people, but they're all around us. And most of us battle our own addictions in some form or fashion. Some are just more damaging than others outwardly. But any Mm -hmm. addiction, even if they're secret and they're not that big a deal, is pretty damaging. Food addiction, of course, is huge in our our country. We're an obese society, Mm -hmm. which leads to a lot of diseases. And so, uh, yeah, addiction is a big deal. Big deal. So the the main qualifier that that a professional might use to identify whether someone is addicted to something versus well is there a difference between abusing it and being addicted to it is there a line between that i think yeah, absolutely yes yes uh, by definition uh i'll give you one example i was preaching on this in flint michigan years ago on a sunday night series about addiction about the the person mm-hmm. in the pew and addiction And there's a difference Mm -hmm. between being a problem drinker and an alcoholic. A problem drinker might get drunk through college, for example, have binges of drinking, you know, uh, fraternities, sororities, uh, people uh, doing the typical thing. Everybody doesn't do it, but a lot of kids do it. Right. And so and they Mm -hmm. they graduate from college. They might even try some recreational drug use in college. Uh, other than alcohol, and they graduate, they grow up, they get married, they start having kids, and they say, you know, it's time to be put that foolish behavior behind us. They might still drink a little bit, but but you wouldn't call them alcoholics. Uh, but was it a, were they problem drinkers in college? They very well could have been problem drinkers. Some people like to get like to drink a lot. And just go out and eat. I don't know what that looks like anymore, going out to eat, but we'll get there someday, maybe going out to eat and seeing how I don't know how people pay for all the the liquor they buy in restaurants. So they could get mm-hmm. drunk a lot and be prob- cause problems in their marriages. So this one guy came to me after I preached on this, that uh, by definition, an alcoholic or an addicted person cannot stop without outside help. They they they're doing destructive behavior, but they, but they don't stop it. And their wife or their husband say, you've got to stop this. Their friends say, you're drinking too much. They say, no, I don't want to stop. And so this guy named Rick came to me and he said, I thought all these years I was an alcoholic, but you're telling me I was a problem drinker. I said, well, I don't know your case. And he said, I got drunk every Friday and Saturday night. I'd come home from work. I'd stop by the liquor store. I mean, by the bar, I'd get drunk and uh, I was functionable at work and uh, for 20 years. And, and finally, my wife came to me and said, if you do it one more time, we're through because it had caused havoc in their relationship. And he said, I quit. Mm-hmm. He just quit. I said, well, by definition, you are probably not an alcoholic. You were probably a problem drinker, but you had the same effect as an alcoholic right. would. Uh, in fact, no, he said he got drunk all the time, like every night, but he would, he would go drink. He would walk back to this house and he would go to sleep. He'd wake up the next day, go to work, but he had no relationship with his wife. And she had warned him hundreds of times. And finally she said, I mean it one more time. 
and we're through. He quit drinking. <laughs> he did not go to AA. He didn't go to a therapist. He just quit. He was probably not, quote, addicted. Now, that's probably rare mm-hmm. because most of us, if we got drunk every night mm-hmm. for, you know, we had probably, but not everybody does that. So, uh, and I think the disease model of not only alcoholism, but addiction is very important when we deal with others in our lives that are having problems there. And especially in relationships like uh, our kids, our, our family, our spouses, you know, if they love me, if you love me, you would quit this behavior. It could be pornography addiction, which is prevalent. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it certainly could be sexual addiction. Uh, and they would say, if you love me, you would just stop it. And the fact of the matter is that's not true. <laughs> I mm. think if you love me, you would get help. Uh, might not be true either for a while because hmm. they cannot live without it for a while. They they think that. And there's physical reasons why they think it. And we could get into that too about the disease model, uh, which I think yeah. is really important. Uh addictions, almost all of them, whether it's behavioral addictions or substance addictions, have to do, what happens in the brain is that dopamine, this uh, endorphin, which is kind of the pleasure uh, endorphin, it it makes me feel good. And and the body naturally produces dopamine. So, uh, and I need dopamine to feel good and feel worthwhile and all that. So when we're in our young 20s, and you can relate this to limerence, many of people in your audience know what limerence is. When somebody mm-hmm. madly falls in love with somebody else, it's like they're on steroids. And if you're single and have limerence, that's okay as long as the other person, the two people are not toxic to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're not dangerous. So that's kind of God's way of drawing us to connect with, with the opposite sex. So, you know, and so that the endorphin spikes during a courtship, if you want to call it that. And so you fall in love with somebody, your endorphin levels going up, but you're not Mm -hmm. addicted to endorphins. Uh, But you can become addicted to that feeling as you, uh, let's say you get married, you can have limerence with somebody that's not your spouse. And that's what we deal with at Marriage Helper a lot. So somebody's having an affair, an emotional affair that often turns physical, normally does, not always. And then, so there's that, that endorphin rush and, and in limerence, the serotonin goes down and the endorphin, I mean, the, the dopamine goes up. So dopamine is that endorphin that is the pleasure. Well, when you have a substance into your system, even pornography, which is not a substance into your system, uh, gambling can be the same thing. Eating can be... Very similar. Uh, the endorphins, uh, the artificial endorphins goes up because you're ingesting such as alcohol or some other drug into your system. And so the endorphins go up. And as you love that feeling, so you, 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 if you keep using that and abusing it, then the body says, hey, you've got enough endorphin, you got enough dopamine, David. And so the body shuts down making dopamine because the body is so com- the brain is so complex it it picks up a uh, dopamine level is high enough one researcher said it's like this natural the dopamine production of the body it's like whispering in your ear 
<laughs> when you have artificial drugs coming in, the endorphin level is like somebody using a megaphone shouting in your ear. It, the difference is night and day. And so mm. when, the, when the body shuts down the, the dopamine making, and this is simplifying it, but it's basically, it's really true. Mm -hmm. The body shuts down. If you try to get off the drug, if your wife says you got to quit drinking so much or uh, the husband says it or, or you say to your kids, you can't keep using this stuff or your friends, mm. you say, OK, I, I can quit anytime I want to. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I, I've heard that a thousand times. OK, I can quit anytime I want to. And I always say, OK, then quit. Go four weeks without mm -hmm. using. Come back and see me. Uh, they usually can't do that. But. Mm -hmm. But if they try, not because they don't try. So they, they try to quit and they feel like life is over as they know it. They can't function. If they don't have, because the dopamine is not being produced by the body and that causes withdrawals. And, and, and a lot of people have to have medical help to withdraw because you could die right. during withdrawals. And so mm. it's a serious deal. So you withdraw the withdrawals. So the, the point I want to make is, for both the, the addict and the family member or the friend mm -hmm. is the fact that we tend to label people. If you only had more self-control, you wouldn't do this. If you love me, you would stop. Uh, and so I, mm -hmm. spouses come in, came into me all the time used to uh, my husband is using, he's drinking all the time. He's getting drunk. If he loved me, he would stop. He's promised me he would stop. He doesn't stop. It has nothing to do with whether he loves you or not. Now, he might not love you. I mean, but mm -hmm. it's not because of that. It's because his body has produced mm -hmm. dopamine. And now the, the body has produced natural dopamine. And then because of his use or, or behavior, it could be pornography, for example, same process happens. That dopamine, it... it the, the body shuts down the making of natural dopamine. So when they try to quit it, so the pornography addict says, I'm not going to look at internet porn anymore. His wife, he promises his wife, by the way, she could be addicted to internet porn. So they say, I won't use again. And then two weeks later they use, or two months later they use. And then the spouse says, they don't love me. If they love me, they wouldn't do that. Not exactly. Be because the body has shut down making dopamine. So when they quit using, it takes a while for the body to start producing it again. So you go through this withdrawal and the withdrawal is awful to the extent that people, they're driven to use again. It's not a matter of weakness. When I did my internship and, uh, for this degree uh, back in 1990, I worked at a place where we did group uh, meetings of people who had arrested for DUIs and, uh, they could either go to our group or they could go to jail for two days. So they all went to our group. We had hundreds wow. come through. I, I did two or three groups every week at, from like 7 to 9.30 at night. And there were attorneys mm -hmm. and there were politicians and there were rich people, poor people, white people, black people, Asian people, Hispanic people, uh, rich, poor. It did not matter. Male, female. It did not matter. Uh, and so what happens is, uh, and this is also interesting, some people have a, more a propensity for addiction than other people. Uh, a dear friend of mine, uh, I've, I've, I've known many people who have died because of drug overdose or 
drug uh, wrong mixtures of drugs and and suicide uh, who who were addicts uh, to either alcohol or drugs or both oh that they they could not stop until they died and they thought of themselves as losers okay and and this is one point i wanted to make very clearly people use to cover pain right they 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 have pain and you might party because it feels good for a while in college but you don't you don't end up abusing some people do the same partying and then they end up abusing they and it's been proven that some people are more uh, are, they're more susceptible to addiction because of their brains. And so uh, the statistic used to be an alcohol. It, it, for every 10 people who start drinking, one will become an alcoholic. If you never start drinking, you won't become an alcoholic. <laughs> right. Okay. But for every mm-hmm. 10 people. Right. That, and, and so, oh, I was telling you about this friend of mine who died and he went to high school with all his buddies and then, and then they all drank dur- during high school and he lived in the small town where we lived in Arkansas. And he, uh, he just never could stop. He went to four or five treatment centers. He went everywhere he could go. His parent, you know, they, we went to the same church and the people who went to church with him and his family, they had sons that went to school with this son. And they all thought of this other guy as weak if he, he just got his act together, right? And mm-hmm. the deal was they needed to understand, maybe they do now, that this was a disease because he was more inclined to that than others. In other words, mm-hmm. if, if you have this, uh, the, I don't, I guess it's genetics, it's been proven that about 40 to 60% of people that are addicts, uh, had that much more uh, uh, susceptibility to being an addict than than the other people genetically. It's just like some people cannot take insulin. I mean, need insulin. To, you know, diabetics. It's a disease. They, you know, they don't they don't choose to do that. The addicts I know do not choose to be addicts. It is not a fun existence. Mm-hmm. It's a terrible existence. Right. And and right. so. And those when, genetics when we, are from parents or for, so if like, if someone's parent yeah. was an alcoholic or an addict of some kind, then there's like a 40 to 60% chance that that would pass down to them. Is that how that works? I don't think that's what that 40, 60% means, uh, but it could, it could mean that. Um, I'm not sure about that. It's hard to know because if it was a parent, you know, part of you, part of science or whoever could say, well, it's, it's genetic, but what if you saw that parent do it and you saw that that was their response and you learned it more as a behavior as opposed to a gene that's inside you urging you to do it? I guess it's hard to know. It's hard to know what percentage uh, of it's genetic and what's, per- I think it's a combination of genetics and environment. You know, there used to be a study that if, uh, if your father was an alcoholic and you're the daughter, you were eight times more likely to marry an alcoholic. Even marrying people, wow. marrying a guy that never drank who became an alcoholic. I, you know, and there are various studies like that that show that people, right? Mm-hmm. But they've also done twin studies of people who are, but it's not, a, it's not an absolute science here. 
And every if you read mm-hmm. stuff about it now, there's different theories, but almost everybody knows that genetics has a place in this. It's not the entire answer. Uh, but the, the important thing is when I work with addicts, when I used to work with Adams, addicts, if, if you think you're a loser and if you think you're such a, a, a bad person that you can't stop this, it actually drives you to drink more or to use more because you're trying mm. to cover up your guilt and shame. Guilt and shame are just synonymous mm. with addicts that I've worked with. Guilt and shame, guilt and shame. Wow. And so when they understand that maybe they're not the worst people on earth, right? You know, yeah. when the person in limerence understands that maybe, maybe they got caught up in something of what they did that they shouldn't have done, it goes against their value system. Mm-hmm. But when they understand limerence, maybe it's a little easier to forgive yourself and to mm-hmm. stop beating yourself up and to change your behavior, right? So mm-hmm. it's a really big deal with the with addicts and with those who work with them, uh, those that love them. And, and this guy I was telling you about, everybody that I talked to had this, and they were good people, by the way. They had this mm-hmm. attitude, if he was just stronger or more faithful to God, he wouldn't be doing this. Mm-hmm. And the, and the answer that. is, yeah. you, you, don't, you don't get it. You don't get what's really going on here in the brain. And, and everybody knows the brain plays a part in this, like it does limerence. It's the same kind of thing in addiction. And uh, it's probably a little, it could be a little worse in one sense. You know, limerence is short term, and then it can end with, with substance abuse. That brain can be damaged, and it takes a while to get back to normal. And it, it depends on how much you use and abuse over the years and what kind of drug you're using but there's no doubt that it it takes uh, the standard kind of thing is two years for the brain to really get back to to where you can function in a healthy way a real healthy way and obviously that's very uh general you know because somebody could use for a year and get help and and, and then get back to functioning quite quickly but somebody's been using 20 years 30 years it it takes mm-hmm. a while and and that would require patience like if i'm in a marriage uh what do i do with with my spouse who is drinking or if i'm in a relationship what do i do well obviously this the the person in addiction has to realize he needs help i mean number one right the person in addiction has to realize they need help it's the old mm-hmm. aa thing of uh, admit that i am powerless i am powerless mm-hmm. uh and as a spouse, I can't make my spouse feel powerless, <laughs> right? I, I can say, I can't live like this anymore. You've got to get help. You can, you know, have an intervention, things like that. But the, it's important for the spouse to understand as much as they can, uh, not only about limerence, if, if their spouse is involved in it, but to understand as much as they can about addictions, uh, because it's kind of the same, the same byline, except that in addictions, uh, the brain is actually damaged, you know, over time. Huh. And to, to, for the brain to start producing dopamine again to normal levels takes a while for that to happen. So you need, you need medical help sometimes. You, you, need, you, need, you, need, you need help. And so I hope that's all clear because I'm kind of feeling like I'm jumping around here. 
So I'll let you ask mm-hmm. some questions. It is, it is. No, it is. So the I had never realized that the brain ends up getting damaged in an addiction. Now, does that is that still true even with a lesser type of addiction? Uh, you know, lesser type being um you know, gambling or, uh, is a lesser addiction than heroin. Yeah. Or, you know, in that sense, you're not, you're not putting in those chemicals that are necessarily giving you that jump, but your brain's creating a dopamine jump. But what about even like addiction to technology or video games or cell phones? Like yeah. when you get so into that rhythm of checking things and looking at things or getting your, so does that still cause changes in your brain? I would say as far as um, producing dopamine to normal levels again without the outside stimuli, probably uh, not damaged. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm not an expert on all the damage to the brain. I, I do know, though, that behaviors like video games. Uh, we had a guy come to a marriage workshop that, that Debbie and I did that, you know, marriage helper workshop that was addicted to video games. We had another guy addicted to softball teams. He had seven softball teams he was playing on at one time all year. Seven. It was destroying his marriage. So if he quits, if he quits the softball cold turkey, he's going to probably have a dopamine depletion in his brain. <laughs> I don't know if it'd take two hmm. years of abstinence for him to get back to where he, he's not longing for that. Uh, it's probably a little different there, but it's the same principle of dopamine being depleted once you stop the activity that has produced the dopamine. Uh, but mm-hmm. I've had, you know, uh, pornography uh, guys who struggle with pornography used to come to me all the time. Uh, and mm-hmm. they, you know, it, I would say a two year span, even for that, if you can make it two years, you, you know, you, you can relax, not relax, but it's easier. Okay. Uh, but it depends on how long the addiction mm-hmm. is going on, but certainly there's a, when I quit preaching, right. I had a drop of, of dopamine, <laughs> you know, uh, right. because I used to get, you know, revved up for Sunday and then, um, Sunday night came and I went, I went down because that, the, that adrenaline, some people call it adrenaline, but there is mm-hmm. a high there. And then you stop. And it took me a few days to get, and, you know, Monday I was useless. Use, when I quit preaching, I went and not into depression, but I was grieving that loss as we talked about. It. it was a grieving loss. So it was a physiological mm-hmm. thing, too. I didn't have that rush of, of dopamine every week. And so even that affected mm-hmm. me. But as time went on, it got more normal. My, my life became normal without that. So I don't feel that anymore. I would think with the substance of cocaine, heroin, opioids, all that stuff that we can be addicted to substance-wise, it can be more serious than that, if that makes sense. Right. I mean, I can mm-hmm. damage the brain. Now, the brain is plastic, and it can find different circuits to replace the ones that aren't. I mean, the brain's fabulous. One right. article I read said the brain has a lot to do with addiction, but it has a lot to do with recovery, too. The same brain mm-hmm. can help me recover. So uh, I think the biggest message I have to addicts is you can recover. Okay. You can, Mm -hmm. and, and, and relationships, you can uh, recover. Uh, The first alcoholic I ever worked with was the worst alcoholic I've ever seen. First one. 
And this went on for seven years. Anyway, long story, he's had about 35 years sobriety now. I still talk to him on Facebook, wow. stuff like that. He and his wife, he's like 80. He and his wife were doing great. And they mm. had seven years of pure hell, of pure hell, mm. or 10 years, 15 years. I thought he had never recovered. And I've learned through recovery wow. work, don't ever give up on somebody. Now, it might destroy a relationship because, you know, you cannot live in that forever as a spouse, right? But there is help out there. What would you tell a person who they have a friend or a spouse or a boyfriend or a son or a daughter who is currently stuck in an addiction? You know, you've said one of those things so far, which is, you know, don't assume that it's because they don't love you or because they're not strong enough. There's so much more going on behind the scenes than that. But what would you tell these people to do? Well, obviously, one size does not fit all here because of situations, because there could be other factors. Um, But generally speaking, Uh number one, you can't fix the other person. You got to stop trying to fix them. Number two, if it's a relationship you want to keep going, such as you're engaged or it's your spouse or it's your child or parent, uh, you can share with them your concerns, right? And it happened with mm-hmm. my mom. I, I thought we were going to have to have an intervention with my mom. The next step would be if, if they're harming themselves and others and you care, you might need to stage an mm-hmm. intervention and you need a professional to help you with that. I mean, you really need to do that right. You can't just yourself right. manufacture an intervention. But when my mother and I was an adult, my sister called me and said, mom, mom has a drinking problem. Did you know that? I said, yeah, I've known it for 35 years. And so... <laughs> And and so she said, I'm going to go down there and see mom. I need to talk to her. I said, OK. And I got a, a treatment, some treatment centers near her arranged. Now, this was not an intervention in, in the technical sense. It was it was a daughter talking to her mother because she loved her and said, Mom, you've got a drinking problem. I hope you know that. But it's it's going to kill you. And mm. and we're really concerned. And. David has a a couple of treatment centers that are available near you that you could go to. And she asked for time. And most people do, by the way. She asked, well, let me try it on my own, getting just help from my friends around here, blah, blah, blah. Well, she did, and she stopped drinking. So I think she was probably not an alcoholic. She was a problem drinker that she needed to quit. Uh, Mm. And really, it might be definition of terms, but she was able to control it and quit without going to AA, without going to a 12-step program, without going to a therapist, without going to a treatment center. If she had refused Mm. to do it and kept drinking, which is the norm, not the mom was the abnorm, then if you love them, if, if if they fail to admit they need help, uh, and they, they're not getting help, you could have an intervention. Uh, but the intervention, I think I think Marriage Helper has some stuff on intervention, right? You've got stuff online about that, don't you? Uh, marriage Helper. Um, mm-hmm. Go online at yeah. Marriage Helper and read what Marriage Helper has to say about it. But you just can't do it alone. You've got to get help from somebody who knows intervention. Right. And it could be a therapist. Uh, but they, you really need an addiction therapist, somebody who's really versed in how to do interventions. And and then, of course, we don't have time to go into all that today, but it's basically getting people they respect and love. Uh, and mm-hmm. But it has to be organized and you have to have 
here's what you must do. You must, you know, go to this place. You, you have to have the options out there that's set. Not just, okay, you just need to really read a book on it or something like that. It needs to be a planned strategy. So, but the, the real key is not to, as you said, it's to look at them with different eyes. Okay. When I, when I started looking at my mom, when I went back to school to get my master's when I was 40 years old uh, in substance abuse counseling, my major professor helped me not hate my mom. <laughs> hmm. He helped me understand that mom was struggling with something beyond her control. Now, she made a choice to start drinking. She had control over that. But once she got to that wow. other place, and, and it helped me deal with mom better. And when I stopped trying to fix her by talking her out of it, <laughs> talking doesn't usually work. Uh, I can't, you know, because talking to somebody like it, it, it just, it, there's no logic there. And they're going to defend and they're going to deny. And so anyway, when I started looking at mom differently and looking at my role differently, I'm not there to fix her, but I can't help her, but I can't fix her. She's got to want to get help. Now, I know another case mm -hmm. that the, the husband was an alcoholic and, and it kept going on. And the wife said, you're going to go to treatment. I've already got the place picked out. Our insurance pays for all of it. You're leaving Saturday. <laughs> uh, she's a therapist that did this. And so she knew what she was doing, but she was she she just said, I, I, I can't take it anymore. The kids can't take it. It's divorce if you don't go. He tried to get out of it. Mm. She said, no, I'm, I'm not even negotiating. That was a pretty quick mm -hmm. intervention. He went, he hadn't had a drink in a year. Uh, he went to a really mm. great treatment center uh, for like five or six weeks. But he needs to go. See, his brain is slowly getting back to the way it used to be. It right. won't be totally back. He's been drinking for 25 years. It won't be totally back, but it's not going to be dysfunctional. Uh, that brain can repair uh, on that deal. And, and, and the dopamine production can be back to normal and all that. But I would mm -hmm. say don't give up. I've learned never to give up. Uh, you might have to give up a relationship because it's killing you and there's no progress. And, and that's out of your control, right? I mean, you do all you can do. And when you do all you can do and you can't do anymore, but it's really important to have an attitude toward the person, even though they've hurt you and they've lied to you, that uh, an attitude of, of compassion, not um, not being naive about it. it. That doesn't solve your problems. It just helps your approach to them be a little softer and different and not be angry all the time. Mm -hmm. It's a hard line to walk because you don't want to give up or abandon that relationship, mm -hmm. but you don't want to continue to be hurt or lied to or betrayed because that's mentally right. that's not safe for you. That's not safe, and so right. fine. And, and everyone's balance of that is probably different. There's probably some it people is. just depending on their upbringing and prior relationships can handle more or handle less, but, you know, just because of what's happened. And so there's not one, one size fits all, like you said, that's right. But these it, are it really the foundational is. things that you can that you can do. Yeah. And then find someone, even as a person who's affected by an addict, finding someone for you to process things with That's is helpful. Right. right. It's really helpful. And uh I I mean I've seen people change when they um 
like the attic and the spouse is in my office and we go over the, what we talked about, the dopamine. Most people don't really think about that. Mm-hmm. They just say, mm-hmm. if, if you had more willpower, you'd stop. If you love me, you would stop. Mm-hmm. When they see that's not that right. something. Attitudes can change. Right. When attitudes change, so it, mm-hmm. back to pies, right? It's back to the marriage helper philosophy. I can only work on me. So, but if I have an attitude adjustment toward my spouse, they still have to stop the damaging behavior for this marriage to work. They have to stop the damaging behavior. There's no doubt about it. But with some people, there might be violence. They need to get away from that, right? Uh, other people, yeah. uh, it's not violence, and it's 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 almost not toxic in the home as bad as it is with some others. And, you know, I'm, but. It's a one size doesn't fit all. So don't judge somebody who says, I can't take this anymore. And don't judge somebody who says, I'm still in there. Because you could separate and mm. still work on your marriage if, if it's not safe for you mm. to be in there. So there's no one size fits all because mm. that would be so irresponsible for us to say, you must do that. And we never say that at Marriage Helper, right? <laughs> you must do this. You must not do this. Uh, but you must be mm. safe. You have to be safe. Um Mm-hmm. So it's a complex issue, but let's stop mm-hmm. labeling people as worthless or losers or, uh, you know, and that doesn't mean people don't need to go to jail to commit crimes, you know, even if they're drug addicts, you know, it doesn't mean mm-hmm. be lenient to the point of being stupid. Right. I mean, some people wow. harm others with, and drug crimes are just horrific. So I hope nobody gets the idea we're saying, right. give everybody a pass and, you know, they can do anything they want. No there's consequences to your behavior. Right. Right. But there can still be consequences and love. Absolutely. It's like limerence. I mean, it, I mean, it's very similar principles. Uh, right. And, you know, we, we say in limerence, uh, if your spouse having limerence and they're in the home, if you can take it emotionally, it's generally better mm-hmm. for them to, you know, for them to be in the home and you work on your pies and uh, mm-hmm. and yeah, it's not always the case because it's toxic sometimes, and the person cannot take it emotionally. It's mm-hmm. too toxic for them. And I, I just think mm-hmm. we don't judge people on either way they go there. We can advise them if they ask and all that. But right. the change of attitude, I think, is really crucial. And then setting consequences, uh, natural consequences that happen, are are trying to intervene. All that stuff with the addict goes much better. If the spirit is there and and by the way, it's okay to be emotional and it's okay not to be perfect in your response when you're so emotionally tied to it. I get people all the, I, I did the wrong thing. I said something I shouldn't have said. I said, okay, you're human. What are we going to do? Human, now? Right. Right. We're, we're human. Exactly. And I really don't blame you for having an emotional outburst. <laughs> now right. it's probably not going to help you much if you keep doing that. But so, but don't beat right. yourself up. <laughs> Just don't do it again. <laughs> right. But if you do, exactly. it's okay. I used to yell at my mom, exactly. scream at her, all that stuff. Uh, and I'm not beating myself up for that. But when I changed my attitude toward her, things got better. And we had a great, mm. we had a great last 20, 30 years with my mom. Mm. So That's there's awesome. hope. There's always, 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 always hope. Thank you so much for uh, everything 
tell our audience where they can find you, follow you, find more about what you do and yeah, get help. Yeah. Well, sparkoflife.org is our uh, website and, and what we do besides marriage helper and it's helping people deal with grief. And we're in a day and age of a lot of grief going on, job loss, uh, financial loss. uh, There's death loss, obviously all, all around plus fear loss. I mean, what could happen. And uh, we're here to help people uh, deal with all this grief. And we have an online course now that uh, is just really phenomenal with three coaching sessions. So if you're interested in finding some grief help, uh, we believe there's hope no matter what your Mm -hmm. loss is. And uh, there's some good information, sparkalife.org. We'd love to help you with that. And uh, I just love Marriage Helper too and what you guys do for people. So appreciate Mm. you, Kimberly. Here are my key pies takeaways from today's episode with David Matthews. The first takeaway is give grace. Try and see the person separate from the addiction. So often it can be easy to tie the two together because if you have a loved one or a friend who is dealing with addiction, then you know that their behaviors are very intertwined with how they're treating you and how you see them as a person. But when you can begin to see that they are dealing and struggling many times with a chemical imbalance in their brain or with something that is so overwhelming and beyond their control to them at this time in their life, then it can really help you have empathy for that person. So while I'm not saying you should accept their behaviors and the things that they are doing, you can still love the person while not accepting the behaviors. Give grace. Give grace. The second thing that you need to do is realize that you are not the reason for the other person's addiction. This is especially difficult if it is a spouse or a family member, such as a parent or even a child. You can really begin to internalize and put on yourself that if you had done something different, that they wouldn't be struggling with what they're struggling with now. There's a couple of reasons that this is so detrimental, but the main reason is that this is detrimental for you. Ultimately, you will begin to feel feelings of guilt and shame that you aren't the cause of. And it is ultimately a self-defeating mindset because you will begin to feel so overwhelmed and so helpless that you will feel like the situation is helpless. It's not helpless. But when you begin to see yourself as a person who can support, who can pray for, who can encourage, and at times who can instill boundaries when needed and take the blame and shame off of yourself, that's when you are best able to be the best support that you can be. Also, if you begin to believe that you're the reason, then you will begin to resent the other person for what they're doing over time. Really try and separate these two things. I know that it's hard, but that is where the benefit of a support group of people who are struggling with being the spouse or the parent of someone who is going through an addiction, those groups can be very helpful in seeing your self-worth even when you feel so tied to the addiction that's happening. The third key pies takeaway I have for you is to assess if you are struggling with an addiction. 
There are what I like to call more impactful addictions, such, such as drug use or alcohol use or sex, or even addictions to other people that have more of an immediate and really more consequential impact in the sense of it could kill someone, it could hurt someone, there's health risks involved. And all of those things make it a more impactful addiction. But there's also lesser addressed addictions. The impact is seen differently, such as workaholics being addicted to work, or being addicted to your phone, or being addicted to social media, or Netflix, or video games, or different things like that, where the impact isn't as large or maybe as immediate, but over time it causes small separations between you and the people that you love. If you are struggling and thinking right now of something where you're saying, you know, I'm thinking that this behavior or thing that I'm engaged in is causing a separation between me and the people that I love in my life, then it may be time for you to assess if you are addicted. If you're feeling that you're controlled by or tied to something, like you need it every day, or you can't live without it, or if you get defensive when others comment about your use or your time spent doing this thing or with this other person, then you may be struggling with addiction and it is time to get help. For sexual addictions, of course, you can go to Sexaholics Anonymous, there's Alcoholics Anonymous, and Narcotics Anonymous that are all based on a really great 12-step program that has amazing results. Also, if pornography is an issue, something that we use in our household is Covenant Eyes, which is a software that you can put on every computer and every cell phone and every TV that has a smart TV that you can make sure that that doesn't become an issue in your marriage. That's a huge one, especially with kids. And I would just say an ounce of prevention is worth more than a pound of the cure when it comes to things like that. So set those things in your life to help you prevent things before they happen, but also to help you overcome addictions that you may currently be struggling with. And here's a bonus tip for you. When I was a junior in high school, I had an English teacher who had a really interesting approach to life. Every single month, he would go without something that he felt that he was tied to. So one month, it might have been he went without hot or warm showers. He only took cold showers. One month, it might be that he went without alcohol. One month, it might be that he went without whatever it might be because he liked to be in this constant process of identifying in his life what he was depending too much on and then going without it. This kind of self-sacrifice, learning how to overcome and work through things when you don't have it, ultimately because he didn't want to be too dependent on any one thing. I thought the concept was really interesting, and it's something that I've done on and off throughout my several years since graduating high school, this concept of going without. That's one reason that I really love the practice of Lent. Between Ash Wednesday and Easter Sunday, there are many people, no matter what kind of Christian religion they might be a part of, that choose something to go without. It's a practice that I've tried to adopt at least once every single year just to get in that mindset of not being controlled by or tethered to things that are especially 
really just desires of the flesh, things that I don't need in my life. But one of the things I'm even doing right now is going without social media. And what this came from was I realized it was something I was spending way too much time on every single day. It was something that I felt like I needed to check it. I felt like I couldn't live without it. I was worried about what would happen if I were to take a break from it for a period of time. And I realized that it was something I was becoming tethered to. And it took two years before I was actually able to get to a point to give it up. That shows you that I was addicted to it. Right now, I've only been two weeks without social media, but I can tell you it's already been so freeing. I'm sure one day I'll go back to it, but I want to be sure that I do it in a way and at a time that I'm going back on my terms where I'm not feeling controlled by it, but I'm controlling my time and I'm not being governed or influenced by what might be happening on the platform but instead I'm in complete control of my time and my decisions with it. That's just one example of how you can possibly look into how you should maybe start assessing some things that you need to give up, even if just for a period of time in your own life. Go get your free attraction assessment at itstartswithattraction.com. In this assessment, you will be able to self-assess yourself in all four areas of attraction to see the areas in which you could use the most growth and to identify the areas that you are already slaying it. Go get your free guide at itstartswithattraction.com. Friends, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Remember to go and subscribe to this podcast and leave an honest review. I love to hear from you guys. So be sure to go and do that. And it will also help more people find the podcast as well. You can always find out more information by going to itstartswithattraction.com for show notes, for updates, and to join the email list so that every Friday you can get an encouraging email that specifically tells you what you can do to work on your pies so that you can become the best that you can be physically, intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually. Until next week, keep working on your pies and stay strong.